Good morning. Hi. <laughs> Carla did a great job of introducing me. And yes, you are definitely a reason I came back for sure. I love being part of this community. So as Carla said, I've been here since 2020 and um, Fuller Seminary brought me to Pasadena and I decided to stick around. So now I'm working at Door of Hope. And for those of you who don't know, Door of Hope is a homeless service provider here in Pasadena. So we work with families facing homelessness. Since 1985, we've been operating transitional shelters in the area. And most recently, um, we've launched into homelessness prevention to keep families housed when they're on the brink of homelessness. So Door of Hope's mission is to empower families facing homelessness through offering holistic services. So we do that through providing case management and through therapy and Bible studies. Um, and so we believe that as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we're called to live a certain type of life. We're called to reflect the ethos of the kingdom. And so if you haven't caught on, Door of Hope is a Christian organization. And so we do what we do because of that, because we believe that we're called to reflect the sacrificial love and the holistic peace that defines what the kingdom is. So that's a little bit about the kingdom, but this morning I wanna talk about the king because today is Palm Sunday, as has been mentioned a few times. So Palm Sunday is the launch of Holy Week, which wraps up next Sunday, Easter, and churches all around the world of different denominations this morning are gonna be celebrating and recognizing when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem just days before his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So today is pregnant with anticipation. There is this sense that something is about to happen. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. We're welcoming him in. So as we're welcoming him in this morning, throughout this week, I wanna ask you, who are you welcoming? What kind of king is Jesus? Because he's here, the king has arrived. So what kind of king is he? And now we're gonna hear from Livy, who is bringing us our reading from Luke 19. The triumphal entry. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a cold tide there, which no one has ever read, ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, to the, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven 
and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you, Libby. So what do we have going on in this passage? Let's, let's unpack it a bit. So here you have Jesus. He's entering the city of Jerusalem in a way that would be very normal for kings and royal figures of that time. So this was something that Alexander the Great did. Um, this is something that actually when kings weren't welcomed properly, serious, there could be serious repercussions. So I found one story of a Roman magistrate who when entering a city wasn't greeted properly and he like besieged the entire city in modern day Eastern France. So, um, so this is very normal. So here Jesus is, he's telling his disciples, go ahead of me, prepare my mode of transportation. And the disciple, he's acting with authority. He's saying, if anybody asks you, say the Lord needs it. So the disciples go on ahead. They place Jesus on the animal. This is something we see King David do for his son Solomon when he's installed on the throne in first Kings. And the crowd is laying cloaks on the road. This is something we see for King Jehu when he's installed on the throne in 2 Kings. The only thing that's a little bit out of place here is instead of a horse, Jesus is riding a donkey, which turns out is a very intentional decision. And we'll talk about that later. But everything else is, is pretty much fitting with the cultural norms of that time. So here's Jesus, he's coming into the city and the disciples, not in Luke, but in Mark's gospel, they're shouting Hosanna, which means literally save now. And they're waving palm branches. And it's important to note here that those palms, they're not like holding up poster boards that say, go Jesus. The palm branches are like loaded with political meaning. So they would remind the Jews of when the Maccabees won, beat this Syrian tyrant like centuries earlier, and they marched to the city of Jerusalem waving palms. So they're loaded with political meaning. The disciples are saying something. They're saying, Jesus is here. He's our King, our Messiah. He's fighting on our behalf. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King. I mean, it doesn't get any more obvious than that. And that comes to us from Psalm 118, which is a psalm associated with Israel's king. They're saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which is something that the heavenly chorus announced earlier at Jesus' birth when he's declared this Messiah figure. So it's clear what the disciples are saying and what the crowds are communicating. And the Pharisees even are telling Jesus, you know, quiet your disciples because this is, they're going to cause a disruption. So this scene is, there's just so much anticipation, so much expectation. Jesus is riding in, the Messiah is here, our victorious king ready to fight on our behalf to free us from Roman oppression. And then Jesus cries. 
As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Who has ever glossed over that before? I know I have. I've, I've not seen that. Yeah, it's strange, right? I mean, imagine there's this scene of heightened emotion and anticipation and Jesus is lamenting. I mean, how, how weird would that be if like you're at this political rally and the politician, the person being honored when he steps up onto the podium begins crying. I mean, that doesn't make sense. And even more so, Jesus like never cries. The only other time is when his friend Lazarus dies. So this is a little bit out of place. So why at this like mountaintop moment when he's being publicly praised and recognized is Jesus crying? Perhaps his words are a key. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The author Jason Porterfield says, Jesus's lament is of the utmost importance. The passion with which this lament was spoken reveals the depth of Jesus's concern. At the start of Holy Week, more than anything else, Jesus longed for his admirers to know how he makes peace. So unfortunately, the disciples only have a partial view of who Jesus is as king. I mean, sure, in some ways they've got it. They know that he's a Messiah. They know that he's on this mission from God that he's been divinely appointed, but they're still missing something. Could Jesus be lamenting because he's saying to the crowds, to the Pharisees, to his own disciples, If only you saw the kind of king I am, and if only you saw the kind of peace I bring, because Jesus is not the king that the disciples expected. Jesus is a subversive king. He's a sacrificial king. So I want you to think about the words and the images that come to mind when you picture royalty. I um, watched season one of The Crown, and so that's what I know about royalty. And I know from that, that um, a royal figure has a certain level of power and influence. And it wouldn't be any different in the Roman Hellenistic context. In fact, at this time, there was this growing tradition of the imperial cult, which was basically like this glorification and deification of rulers. So Jesus, in a context in which royalty, they're up here, kings and leaders, they're up here. Jesus, the king, completely subverts the world's expectation of what it means to have power and to have authority. Jesus is a subversive king. When the disciples were expecting Jesus to bring a peace that would come through violence, a peace that would come through victory over Roman oppression, Jesus would bring a peace that would be so much greater his mission of peace would be one that actually like encapsulates every worldly definition of peace and what it means to be at peace. The disciples were hoping for like this shallow peace, a negative peace, which is defined by like a lack of conflict or violence. They might've been confusing peacekeeping with peacemaking. So peacekeeping is like, you know, in a situation where there's a conflict overseas and the UN will send a task force there to squash the conflict, usually through some amount of force. 
And there's still like hostility between enemies. There's no reconciliation, but there's just no active warfare. That's peacekeeping. But Jesus is not in the business of peacekeeping. Jesus is in the business of peacemaking. And that's about putting down the sword to seek peace. It's about taking what's broken and making it whole. Jesus brought a peace that went far beyond reconciling political systems. This vision is so grand and so multifaceted that the English word peace doesn't actually do justice to like what we're talking about here. A better word would be shalom. And one biblical scholar, Randy Woodley, says that peace would only be an adequate description of shalom if it were right to say that the Grand Canyon was like this crack in the ground or that the Pacific Ocean was a pool of water. That doesn't as we know, come anywhere close to describing what those phenomena are. And Martin Luther King Jr. said that shalom is the power of the kingdom of God. So this is kind of a loaded concept, so we'll try to break it down. But biblical scholars say that shalom is about individual and collective wholeness. It's this state where it involves the material and the moral and the relational, it's this, it's somehow for right now, but it's also for the future. It's something that's eternal because it culminates in this vision of the Prince of Peace reigning over a kingdom of peace. It's a state of complete wholeness. One definition is like just everything's working well, everything's right, everything is as it should be. So it's about wholeness within me It's about wholeness between me and you. It's about wholeness and harmony between us and them. It's about wholeness and harmony between all of us and creation. And it's about peace and justice and wholeness and harmony between us and God. So Jesus's peace that he's bringing, this shalom, as you can probably grasp now, it's so much bigger than just about peace between political systems. This is like a comprehensive, holistic vision of peace. So um, when I think about shalom, because it's kind of, again, hard to wrap our heads around, I think about a story that I heard from Janelle Austin. And Janelle um, used to be a director at Fuller, and most recently she's living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she's doing a lot of racial justice work. And I got to interview her on a podcast and I was asking her like, where do you see shalom at work in your community? Like, what does it actually look like? And so she told me this story. She said, it was back in 2020 and she was living in Minneapolis. And as we all know, this was right after George Floyd was murdered. Um, And so this time was characterized by such violence and such a lack of peace, such brokenness in her community specifically. And she said that um, she started to notice something in her community, that right where George Floyd was killed, she saw flowers start to be dropped off, and then street art, and then children's drawings. And this space that had seen so much violence and atrocity began to be transformed into like this place where the community could collectively gather and mourn and hope and pray. And there were these offerings laid of pain and of hope. 
And she said that the beautiful thing about the space was that it wasn't just one type of person either. I mean, sure, there were artists, but then there were also caretakers, people who just came to like sweep up broken glass. And also it was like this intersection of the entire community and then eventually world. I mean, people have really gone to see this memorial from all over and people were showing up, not just those who were directly affected by the violence, but people who had seen it happen to their neighbor and they were like, I care about that. And I wanna be part of this work of bringing justice and transformation and healing to a community that's seen so much pain. Janelle said, like, that's a glimpse of shalom. It's people looking at a place where there has been brokenness and working to make it whole, working to reconcile broken systems and situations. That's what shalom is. Jesus says, if you only knew the things that make for peace, not only are the disciples missing what the peace actually is or looks like or what it's defined by, but they're also missing the things that make for peace, how this vision of peace is gonna be achieved. Throughout Jesus's entire ministry, he's made it very clear that he's a different type of leader. He's famously washed his disciples' feet. He's told parables about this upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. And in this passage, as I referenced briefly, he makes the decision to ride in on a donkey rather than a horse. Jesus has made it clear that he is a humble leader. And the disciples have seen that to some extent, but yet they still don't see what he's about to do next coming. The way that Jesus as king is about to make peace is completely unexpected. Jesus is about to lay down his life. How do we know that this is unexpected to the disciples? I mean, it doesn't take much. I mean, one week later, virtually, when Jesus is at the cross, his disciples are nowhere to be found. So the same people that were shouting, Hosanna, save us, do not expect that Jesus would be this type of king. A king who would sacrifice himself. They do not see this coming. The day that Jesus entered Jerusalem would likely be the same day, actually, that the lambs would be entering the city of Jerusalem. So let me back up. This is happening, um, this whole scene is happening during the Jewish festival of Passover, which is when the Jews are celebrating their liberation from Egypt, obviously a practice um, still honored today. And as part of that tradition, Jews would sacrifice a lamb. And some scholars say that it's likely that on this day, suppliers would be bringing in the lambs to the city of Jerusalem, possibly through the same gate that Jesus entered. So here you have this profoundly symbolic vision of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, not as a dominant authoritarian leader who would like smite the city if he's not honored correctly, but as a sacrificial lamb, that's the thing that makes for peace. It's the sacrificial king, the king who would lay down his life to make for us a way to God. Romans 5 tells us that we have peace with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that because of him, we have been reconciled to God. I like the way that N.T. Wright says it too. He says, evil would be defeated not by military victory, but by a doubly revolutionary method. By turning the other cheek, going the second mile, the deeply subversive wisdom of taking up the cross. This is the message I hope you don't miss this morning. And maybe this is familiar to you. Maybe you've heard this before, or maybe you've never heard this before. But regardless, I hope you don't miss this. The kingship of Jesus and the holistic peace that he brings is not achieved through a violent overthrow of his enemies, but through the completely sacrificial act of his death. His death for you and his death for me. And of course, we know that this isn't the end. This is in some ways only the beginning of the story because next week we'll celebrate Jesus's resurrection, which means life for you and life for me. Through this act, though, Jesus brokers the ultimate peace deal, a peace that we now have between each other, within ourselves, between us and creation, and of course, between us and God. Through this sacrificial act, Jesus as king makes for us a way to God. So I don't know if you guys have ever had a verse that you loved so much that you've named it your life verse, but I do. Um, and well, for the past five, five years, but I think it's gonna be my life first for the rest of my life. And it's Hebrews 10, 14. And it says, for by that one sacrifice, he perfected forever those he is making holy. And this verse really resonated with me um, at a time in my life when I felt like God's grace and his forgiveness were things that I had to earn, rather gifts to be received. So it was the year after college and I was doing this year-long mission trip and I was working on a team of like seven other people and we were traveling a lot throughout the year. We were traveling throughout South America and Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe and Africa. And I don't know what it was about this year. I think it was probably because I just had zero control over anything. Um, what we ate, where we slept. Um, but I, that year, removed from, you know, all comfort and everything that was familiar, everything I'd used to help me identify myself as me, I began to be hyper aware of my sin. Or said differently, I just became so aware of my shortcomings and how large the gulf really was between me, me, and God. And I wrestled with like, how can I possibly bridge that divide? And I became so fixated. It was something that I wrestled with that um, I, I remember one night we were in um, Simreap, Cambodia, and we were staying at a hotel, my teammates and I, which was unusual. We weren't normally in hotels, but we were for a few days, which was nice. Um, and we were worshiping on the roof of the building, 
And I just remember I like felt so broken. And I left feeling incredibly dejected, just like with every song, every, every song that we sang that was like, God's up here, it just made me feel like I was even lower down here. And I remember I was sitting by the pool and I must have been giving off like just I'm not okay vibes because my friend Jacqueline walked out and she saw me and she walked up to me and she just sat down next to me and started asking me questions. And as she started asking me questions and I started answering them, it became clearer and clearer to me and probably her that I was just like so focused on myself, so much so that I had completely forgotten who Jesus was. I had completely forgotten the kind of king that Jesus is. Because the reality is, Jesus is not a king who's up here and we're down here and he expects us to rise up to his level. That's not the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus is the kind of king who, while being up here and we're down here, meets us where we are. Jesus is the kind of king that outstretches his hand and pulls us up to where he is. And that night, Jacqueline reminded me of that. She reminded me of Hebrews 10, 14. For by that one sacrifice, he perfected forever those he's making holy. He perfected forever, not me. It's not something I have to do. There is so much freedom in that message and so much hope. So I'd like to ask you the same question I asked at the beginning of our time together. What kind of king is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you in your life? Is he even a king? And if he is, what kind of king is he? Is your understanding of Jesus informed by some worldly conception of royalty or of what a king should be or of what anyone with any level of power should be? Are we just like the disciples, expecting Jesus to ride in on a horse, like guns blazing, ready to shoot down whoever's in our way at the exclusion of other people? Or is Jesus the kind of king who brings about a holistic peace, not through gunning down our enemies, but through sacrificing himself? Is that the kind of king that Jesus is. Because if we do accept that that's the kind of king Jesus is, then that means something for us. The invitation then is actually so much deeper because we then, with him being our king, are part of a particular kingdom, which means that we're, li- we're called to live a particular kind of life, a kind of life that's defined by this holistic peace and this sacrificial love, we're called to reflect the character and the identity of our king. We're called to examine our status and our power and our privilege and to use those things not for our own gain, but for the well-being of others. 
And I don't know what this would look like in each of your lives, in, in my life. But I do wonder what it would, how it would begin to transform communities if we examined the things that we've been given, our power, our status, our privilege, and use them for the well-being of others, if we leverage them for the well-being of others. And that could be different for each of us. I mean, that could be age, race, gender, wealth. But to get us thinking, I want to tell a story. So the story is about uh, two friends, one named Dr. John Perkins and one named Steve Lazarian. And like I said, they were friends. And back in the 1980s, they were living here in Pasadena. And Dr. John Perkins was like this fiery pastor from Mississippi. And Steve Lazarian was a businessman in the area. And the two of them began to notice something in the community. They began to see that some were doing really well. Some people were like thriving and then others were not at all. And specifically in Northwest Pasadena, there was this ongoing cycle of poverty that led to violence and illegal activity. And John and Steve recognizing this, recognizing the wealth gap and the way that it was affecting the city decided we wanna be part of some sort of change. And so they began to hold listening conferences in the area of Northwest Pasadena. So they basically just start, started to go there and ask the community questions and listen. Like, what do you guys need? What are the felt needs in this community? And after determining some, they did something about it. And this is how Harambe Ministries and Door of Hope came about, which are two organizations that are still serving under-resourced neighborhoods and families in the city of Pasadena. So John and Steve had things to offer. Dr. Perkins was skilled in urban development. Steve was a successful businessman and had the ability to fund a ministry. And so they looked at their resources and their skills and their particular giftings, and they used those things. They wielded them, not for themselves, but for the community. What would that look like if we were to do the same? And it's important to note that they didn't go into the community with all of the answers, but they went in just opening a space to listen, to hear from the community, and then from that place partnered with the community. And this is very much still Door of Hope's model. You know, the starting place when working with families is never that they need to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but it's like the very simple providing shelter and providing meals. And from that place, families, people, when we sacrificially love in that way, can catch a glimpse of the kingdom, a glimpse of shalom. Now I wanna spend a little bit of time in reflection this morning. I want us to reflect on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Is this new for you this morning? Or is it so familiar that it's easy for it to just kind of go in one ear and out the other? 
because this message is actually quite profound. The kind of king that we worship is a king who brings about a peace that's so much greater, so much richer than we could ever, ever imagine. And if Jesus really is who he says he is, a king who turns the characteristics of kingship upside down, bringing a peace that's so much greater than what the world offers through his sacrificial act of love. What does that mean for you? Maybe it means that this morning you just receive him. Maybe it means that today for the first time, you welcome him into your life as this kind of king. I invite you to close your eyes and take a minute to reflect. What is the invitation for you this morning? Maybe it means that you accept an invitation to mirror the life of the king through giving whatever it is you have to offer as a loving sacrifice for those around you. Maybe it looks like you acknowledging that you do hold a certain level of power or status or privilege, which you don't need to be ashamed of in any way, but Jesus actually invites you to recognize it and use it use it for, to further the holistic peace that defines the kingdom of God. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus as a sacrificial king, a king who laid down his life for you to make for us a way to God. That's the kind of king Jesus is. God, I thank you. I thank you for your son, for the freedom and for the hope that comes from his sacrifice. I pray for every person in this space and who's watching online that whatever you might be highlighting for them this morning, for all of us this morning, that we will be bold to accept the invitation. God, I thank you that at the start of Holy Week, we welcome Jesus in as a King who loves us so much more than we could ever imagine. So much so that he went the distance to pull us up to where you are. God, would you bless the rest of our time this morning as we usher in the King, the sacrificial King who loves us more than we could ever imagine.